Welcome to This Week in Theater, courtesy of the Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tiamanini. This Week in Theater is a bi-weekly podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we will have three interviews from theater people in Boise, Seattle, and Chicago, as well as a review from Sarasota. Matt, how are you? I'm doing great. We are recording on Friday, April 29th. This will be out on the 30th. By the time you all hear it, I will either be on my way to or in New York City. So no reviews from this trip for this weekend theater, but I'm sure I will be talking about them in other various and sundry Broadway radio podcasts uh, in the coming days and weeks as well. Let's hope that this, this time it goes better than last time. Yeah, I do not need to miss nine shows in a in a given week so knocking on wood that i stay healthy and my flights all land and take off when they are supposed to matt we're doing three interviews this week it's like a bonus episode we are yeah so since you're doing two of them why don't you start with your first one okay so my first interview is with playwright uh leonanako winkler and director jesse jow who are teaming up for the show Two Mile Hollow at Seattle's Intamon Theater. The show began performances earlier this week, just on Tuesday, and is currently scheduled to run through May 14th. This comedy satire centers on a wealthy white family gathering together to dish secrets and drink wine one last time in their Hamptons estate before the home is sold. And you might think, oh, There's a lot of shows like that where rich white people talk about their problems. However, what's interesting about this show is by the playwright's decree, it is mandated that the entire cast is made up of people of color. This cast is made up completely of Asian American Pacific Islanders. And the fact that these extremely white characters are played by people of color adds a much different tone to the show than it might have had had it been done by white people. In my conversation with Leah and Jesse, they get into why that was the decision to write the show that way and how that impacts the performances that you see on stage. So here's my conversation with Leah Nanako Winkler and Jesse Jow. All right, so let's dive into this conversation about Two Mile Hollow. Um, Leah, when I first heard the description of this show, I guess probably, what, four or five years ago now, um, I loved the idea of this show because so much of what we see in American theater and what we hold up as these great pieces are, as they are described in a lot of the press materials, stories about rich white families with secrets. But this concept (laughs) of doing one of those shows, essentially, with a cast of actors of color is is really exciting um, and, and interesting. Where did this concept for how you structured this show come from? Well, so I actually first started writing the play in 2013, 2014. And it all started because, A, I was... I was working for like a very wealthy family at the time uh, for and, and past the point of when I started writing this play, like I, I work, I worked for them, which they, they are lovely people. They're not based on this play whatsoever. Uh, but, but, but I, but, but I was in those circumstances where I was 
seeing wealth that I had never seen in my young adult life. Like I, I grew up in uh, Kamakura, Japan and Lexington, Kentucky. And I thought that a gated community was wealth. I did not know that apartments existed where people had entire floors and elevators opened up to their penthouse and like, like super 1% stuff. Like I had never seen. So I was grappling with a lot of uh, issues internal issues about class, uh, also being a young uh, playwright trying to break into the New York theater scene. I was, I was really surrounded by very nice, but like kids who come from like a more of a uh, economic class to me that I, I did uh, with things that I didn't have access to. Right. And who had gone to like Ivy league universities and uh, who had like, parental support in terms of like monetary stuff or credit cards and stuff like that and I was also like grappling with like a lot of those issues so that was in the that was the headspace that I was in at the same time I grew up on all of these plays um that I loved like Chekhov and Tennessee Williams and I I started wondering like, well, I, I have really I, I'm surrounded by all of these stories about white people. I'm surrounded by the canon of white white stories and in media i'm also surrounded by white families and quirky white families and 2013 2014 was like a really different time like you couldn't even really say white without getting into trouble <laughs> or like or like having people like label you as angry or uh there, there wasn't like a reckoning you know and um and theater at the time was producing a lot of these plays uh from like the classics like Chekhov to um, modern plays. I, I think the one that I saw and I drew a lot of inspiration was this one called The Country House by Don Margulies. It's actually a really great play, but it's but it's a um, like an affluent family in the uh, somewhere like by the water, like fighting and like secrets coming out and it had Blythe Banner in it. And I was at a writer's retreat with um, Youngblood at EST and my friend and like, he's an amazing playwright, Will Snyder looked at a pamphlet uh, from MTC and was just like, wow, all of these plays are like white people by the water plays. <laughs> like this <laughs> is a white genre. person. By the, yeah. This is a white person by the water play. This is a white person by the water play. This is a white person by the water play. And I thought, huh, wow, like I have, here I am. I'm, I was, I think 26, 27 years old at the time. I work for affluent white people. A lot of the movies that I watch are about white people by the water spilling secrets. And all the plays that I was taught are white people by the water plays. Like I was taught that these plays were great and I'm not taking agency away from these plays. Some of those plays are truly great. Like I love the, I love Chekhov. I love the cherry orchard, but I started wondering like, well, why do I know everything about them? And they know nothing about me. So <laughs> I decided to sit down at that retreat and just start writing my own white person by the water play to start examining like well how much do I actually know about these people like how much do I know this narrative like how much is this narrative ingrained in my brain and I think like six hours later or so I had something like 40 pages oh my. <laughs> yeah so I so so I knew that I was on to something 
But it took me a really long time to actually discover that I needed actors of color to play these roles as white people. Um, the first couple of readings that I had of Two Mile Hollow, actually, the family was played by white actors. And Charlotte, the uh, assistant in the show, uh, was played by a person of color. And it was getting like a lot of laughs at these readings in New York, but something was off. I thought like, oh, like, am I just perpetuating the thing that I'm satirizing and criticizing? Because first and foremost, Two Mile Hall is a comedy. So if I make people laugh, like it takes me a really long time to realize like what the show is because I get seduced by the laughter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah. But I was like, okay, I know it's funny, but what is the play actually doing and what do I want to say? And so I went back to my original question, which was, well, why do they, why do I know so much about them, but they don't know much about me? And then I have to hand it to artists that play, which is this really small, but really cool theater company in LA who read a draft in, I think, 2015. I I might get that wrong, but it was an early draft and they're a theater company of color. So they took the play and they said, oh, like we really want to do this play, but can we cast it with all BIPOC actors? And that's when I thought, oh, that is actually the ingredient this play is missing. Like I want, like these are really fun roles that I've actually written and people of color, actors of color need to be able to play these roles. And it needs to serve as a, uh, showcase to their talent on top of being a critical piece, a a satirization, but people need to walk away from this play having a good time, but also just knowing that all of these actors in the play, these non-white actors can play all the roles in the canon and more, of course. So that's that's how it started it was a really really long journey to uh get to get to get to actors of color playing these roles but I do not regret it and I know that it was the right choice and that's what made the play very very uh special I think yeah well and and Jesse Leah mentioned that this was kind of like before the the reckoning especially in the theater that we've seen over the past couple years now that you are in rehearsals with this show are you finding that maybe you, I don't know if you've read it before 2020 and now you have it up on its feet in 2022. Are you finding that everything that the society at, at large and then the theater community specifically over the past couple of years has been through has changed some of the resonance of the content and characters of the show? I think if anything, it's uh, deepened the resonance of the characters and the shows. I mean, it's been really, you know, I had read this play, I think, prior to 2020 and I was deeply in love with it. And then when this opportunity came up to bring it to Seattle, to work on it in Seattle, I was like thrilled because I'm a huge fan of Leah's writing. And I think one of the, I think one of the best things, (laughs) and I think one of the best (laughs) things about working on the show right now is just being in a room where, you know, uh, you know, and Leah's absolutely right. You know, a couple of years ago, if you wanted to talk about whiteness, it was like, you could feel the air sort of leave the room because people, yeah. didn't want to talk about whiteness. Yeah. Um, but what's been really lovely about being in this space and with this group of actors is that we talk about all the sort of complex issues that the that the play brings up for us. And we talk about all the ways this, sort of, this story resonates. We, um, for this production, uh, the cast is entirely Asian American Pacific Islander. Yeah. And so we talk a lot about our experiences uh, having inside of that identity 
and uh, our relationship uh, growing up to whiteness uh, and assimilation as part of our experience of this play. And it's been really kind of, uh, I would say, almost healing to be able to have those conversations with each other and to say, oh, this is what this play is reminding me of, or this is what this play is making me laugh about. And I think we have a lot of, um, I think we have a lot of affection for what Leah has created with this play in terms of in terms of uh, the conversations we're able to have. It's funny because I was, I, I don't think Leah told you this or, or I might've told you this, but like before this, uh, this offer came along, I've been thinking a lot about like my own relationship to my own internalized white supremacy. And I was like, mm-hmm. should I, I want to make a, I want to make a piece about this. And then this play came along and I was like, Oh great. Leah wrote that play. <laughs> because there's just so much, because there's so much in this play that is about sort of, you know, uh, doing it with a great deal of love and humor, but also just sort of asking yourself, you know, like, how are you, how have you sort of internalized these ideas that you've been told your entire life? And how do you sort of resist them now and, and try to find a new path forward for yourself, which is really a wonderful thing to be able to do. Yeah. Jesse, when you got this offer to do the show up in Seattle, was the idea to cast it with all Asian American Pacific Islander actors already part of that offer? Was that something that you brought to the table or where did that decision come from? I think that was just a conversation that uh, Intamon knew they wanted to do. And um, I knew it was for me the right way to, to, to take the show. And so it was just a case where uh, we both came to the table saying, this is how we'd like to approach it. And uh, fortunately that lined up and uh, you know, the uh, acting community is really incredible here in Seattle and the level of Asian American talent is just stellar so i'm just super excited by the cast that we have yeah, yeah i i'm so excited by that too like i i i write in the stage directions that the show is meant to be performed by most like, like at least two api actors in every cast uh, i think it it is it, it depends on the community but especially in new york Asian Americans are still very, very low on the totem pole in terms of percent, like casting percentage. Um, I think last year it was 6% as per APAC of all casting decision on, on and off Broadway. Uh, if that's not the exact, I mean, it was definitely lower it's than close. 10. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it changes every year. I track it every single year and it just makes me so sad. And part of the reason that mm. I was, uh, d- during the involvement of this play, I was auditioning actors in New York for various <laughs> other projects. And uh, I always write for Asian American women in particular. And every single time I, an actor would come in, they had the same thing on their resumes. And it was always like, Miss Saigon, Miss Saigon, Miss Saigon, the King and I, the King and I, 4,000 miles, 4,000 miles, 4,000 miles. And <laughs> I think that I, I just find like a great sadness in the lack of material. And I really support the choice of Two Mile Hollow being performed by an all Asian cast. Uh, in terms of like, productions I think it works uh with a mixed cast too I've seen it both ways this is actually this is actually my most popular play it's been done over yeah it's been done I think 12 times around it's been done in every single theater city except for New York oh wow (laughs) yeah no one in New York will do it I wonder why shocking (laughs) nobody will tell me why (laughs) no not my reps not my not the producers, not any. No, one one time, a young, like a really young, cool director, 
came up to me and was like, oh yeah, you know, I had a general meeting at this prominent theater and uh, they were like, oh, do you want to pitch any plays? And they apparently said, to my hollow. And the artistic director looked at them and said, no. Yeah, their their <laughs> subscribers might not like that one. Uh, it might hit a little too close to home. I don't know. I think I think they would though. I, I actually think they would, but but nobody but nobody's told me like exactly why. But it is very popular and critically acclaimed in other places, and and it has and it does work with a mixed mixed race cast very very well. And I want each community to meet their casting needs in terms of underrepresentation. But I think that given the circumstances of the world right now and the rising hate crimes against Asian Americans, like it's really it's really important to me, Jesse, that you cast this production with all API actors. And to, to I'm just like so excited to watch them have fun and make people laugh. <laughs> and I'm just like so, so happy about that. Yeah, and what's interesting is we've seen a number of shows in the last few years, even since this show premiered, or maybe even around the same time, where they have taken groups of characters that are, you know, canonically white and played them with actors of color, or in the case of like um, Jacqueline Backhouse's Men on Boats, like mm-hmm. characters who are men, uh, but they're all played by by women. What obviously, I think it's. We understand the concept, but from you as a playwright, what was that special sauce that that theater out in Los Angeles found that made the story a little bit more impactful when it was told by people who weren't actually uh, looking like the characters that they were portraying? Yes, I think for me, um, I love Hamilton like everybody else. It's like a masterpiece. Yeah. but my but my play is like mean Hamilton if you think about it because I definitely I definitely don't ignore race like these actors even though throughout the course of the play you get to fall in love hopefully if the show works you get to fall in love with each character and you root for their storylines you know that they're performing whiteness from the top and I think that by 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 that mechanism it's a political statement from the get-go although it's satire so so what separates my play from like colorblind casting is it's like pointed it starts out as pointed white face like it is a comment on whiteness at first yeah and Jesse, as you are now, you told me before we started, you're getting ready to move into the space for the beginning of tech rehearsals later this week. As you have been working with this group um, of actors, how have you seen them kind of embrace these characters that maybe they were most familiar with, like Leah was, from having been ingrained with the canon of white theater and having now had the opportunities to live in them through this show? Well, I think the greatest thing that we've uh, we've talked about in, a, in, in our approach to the characters is to really try to ground them in a kind of um, real vulnerability and real kind of uh, clear emotional relationship. Because I think this kind of material can sometimes, the temptation of it is to really go for the satire and go for the comedy and go for the laugh. And uh, we've found, at least in rehearsals, that when they really go for what is true and vulnerable about the character, uh, it's just funnier and it's just, and it resonates so much more. 
And so as they've uh, been working on these characters of the last couple of weeks, it's been really wonderful seeing that, that. And Leah has a note about this at the beginning of the play as well, where she talks about, um, you know, how it's very important to ground these characters and to not turn them into sort of caricatures or comments on, um, on, the, on the political satire that she's doing. And so by doing that, I think it feels very sort of personal and grounded and funny in a way that I think is very different than if they were just sort of going for the sort of more sketch comedy kind of approach and mm-hmm. uh, doing a more a broader interpretation. Yeah. And so that's been really satisfying. And I think this also goes to Leah's desire to create uh, roles that are substantial uh, that have a lot of substance for for uh, for actors of color, and you know, the other day I was like finding myself like deeply emotional about the choices that one of the actors was making <gasps> as uh, as as Mary, uh, who is the daughter in the family, and yeah, she just kind of went for it. I was just like laughing, and I was like getting teary eyed at the same time, and I was just like, this is hurts, but it's also so funny, and I think that's what's really great about the comedy of this piece, which it feels like. Yes, there's the political satire that is happening, in it, but it also feels like a real depiction of a dysfunctional family. And yes. once you sort of feel those dynamics, it's so satisfying. Yeah, and that's definitely, it, that's the trick of the show. Like it starts out, like you think you're going to go see this like straight satire, but if it's played as broad sketch comedy, it's not going to be able to sustain itself. Like the joke wears off of like, oh, these aren't white people and they're playing white people. Like after about like two scenes, And it's like, okay, well, why am I still watching the show? And the secret of the play really is that these dysfunctional family issues that we're all familiar with, these tropey characters of the manic depressive son, the daughter who's frumpy and doesn't have the love of her beautiful mother, the, um, you know, the I have it all kind of older brother who's like handsome, but still has like problems with his own and is probably like, had some sexual misconduct if you look into his background like these aren't actually 100% like like white people have just capitalized on these stories right like they've just like monetized these stories and they've claimed these stories so yeah like yes we are like making fun of white people but at the same time like you're pointing out like oh like these issues like aren't just like exclusive to white people this is just like what they've been talking about for a really long time so we have these like issues ingrained as whiteness but any actor can actually play these roles but like I like I have issues with like my weight like it's not just white girls you know (laughs) like it's (laughs) like 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 people who are not white are also like manic depressive like Steve Carell didn't have to play that role in this a little Miss Sunshine it it could have been like a BIPOC actor and it's not that I, I I think that part of the goal of the show is just to make audiences forget about the whiteness at some moments of the show and like be like really entranced with these characters until the end when like something happens but and and there is like one character in the show who is a BIPOC actor playing a BIPOC character as well so you get that perspective as well yeah 
One thing I wanted to talk about, and I don't know where this initiative, I'm assuming with the theater, but I, I don't know, Jesse, if you were involved in this decision or if, Leah, you had to approve it in some way. But in addition to the show running from April 26th through May 14th, it will also be streaming on demand from May 9th to May 15th. And in addition to like this reckoning that we talked about uh, in terms of, of race over the past few years in theater, another thing that has been a major topic of discussion in the community has been accessibility to theater, especially during the pandemic when so much of the theater, whether you want to put quotes around that or not, that was being made was being done virtually. Um, how important was it for you? Let's start with Jesse about, you know, to have this be a production that could be seen by folks that, either were not comfortable in going into a theater physically with other people around them yet, or might not be able to see this particular production in the Pacific Northwest. I think a lot of that credit goes to Intamon, who I think have a very sort of forward-thinking vision of accessibility. And so uh, I, I was not part of that decision, but when they told me that they were planning to do this, I was super excited because uh, this, this, along with ticket initiatives that they have, uh, such as I think they do a sort of free-for-all campaign as well that uh, creates uh, access to tickets um, for people who may not be able to afford tickets. And so, uh, you know, they've really committed, I think, to a vision of accessibility or access to theater anyway, um, that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm hoping will broaden both the reach of the work, but also the ability of people to participate in and enjoy a live performance. Although, I guess it's technically not live performance. But yeah, but you know, but yeah, close enough. And, and Leah, what is your thoughts on uh, your show being able to be viewed in this way, especially with, you know, the first, I think you said it's the first time that the cast is completely made up of API actors. Oh, it's not, it's not the first time oh, at all. Okay. Yeah, no, no. Like, I, I would say, um, I would say like 60% of the productions uh, oh, really? of the show. Yeah, 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 oh, wow. yeah. Uh, it's just that there's been a couple of shows like the, the production in Boston um, was, I think, primarily black actors and then um in arizona it was a uh, more mixed mixed race uh, a lot a lot like just all different types of actors and then um other than that it's been all aapi oh cool uh oh, oh chicago was also uh primarily predominantly asian but joshua was played by a latinx actor and um uh i believe uh i believe Oh, I, and I, and Christopher was played by a black actor. They were all great, but um, I'm I'm really excited for this to be streaming because I've never had a show like a production of this stream before. And as I said, like literally, like none of my none of my New York friends have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really 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 looking forward to just sending sending like all the the link. I, like I've I've gotten the privilege to travel around the country and see different productions of it especially during its uh, rolling world premiere that uh this amazing agent i used to work with beth blucker is like finagled uh, a simultaneous world premiere with first floor theater in chicago uh theater moo and mixed blood in minneapolis ferocious lotus in san francisco and uh artists that play in la so there were four productions in its simultaneous world premiere and many productions after that but just never never in the city and i'm just i'm just really excited that anyone anywhere can watch it. my parents can watch it like 
like <laughs> I don't know like I, I mean and coming from like me like I didn't I couldn't even afford to watch theater even though I have been working as a playwright in New York for 15 16 years now I couldn't afford theater until I got a tv job like four years ago so I am all for this yeah. <laughs> initiative <laughs> I think it's great <laughs> Well, I'll wrap it up here with a couple last questions for each of you. Jesse, you have mentioned the fact that this is a show that um, was really exciting for you to have the opportunity to work on it. As people are now going to get to be able to see what you've been working on um, later this month, just in over a, a week from now, um, what are you hoping that they take away from seeing this production that you've been working on in the rehearsal room for the past few weeks? Well, I think I hope they come away with an appreciation of the political critique that's happening inside of it. But I also, especially I've been feeling a lot, this a lot about just theater making in general after the last two years. I also hope they come away with a lot of joy because I think that's mm -hmm. something that we all sort of need more of these days. And so I think that uh, I think that they I, I think that they'll come away with things to think about. But I also hope that they come away having had a great time with a lot of laughs and a lot of affirmation about, you know, just the joy of being together and joy of being in space. Yeah. And, and Leah, you're going to be flying across country to stay, see the, uh, the previews and going into opening night as you yes. get ready to go see a production of one of your shows, especially if you haven't been involved in the, uh, you know, the rehearsal process or anything like that. It, does that involve nerves, even though you trust everybody involved, but like this is something you created, but then turned over? What is that feeling like for a playwright? I think that for it would be very, very scary if the director were not Jesse Zhao. He yeah. is very, um, very like I, I like I'm a huge fan of his work. And as soon as I knew that Jesse was under the helm, I was just like, oh, well. I have nothing to worry about. And I'm very, and, I, and, I, and I've heard such amazing theater, or sorry, amazing things about the Intamin. Into, I, I keep saying it wrong. What is it? <laughs> Intamon. 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 Yes. Yeah. I've heard such yeah. amazing things about Intamon, like for years and years and years. I heard it's the place to be in Seattle. And I heard that the actor through the grapevine, like that the actors who are cast at the show are just like the most sought out, most talented, amazing people. So I, I don't know. I, I'm just really looking forward to it. And I also, because of the pandemic, I haven't seen anything of mine on stage since 2019, aside from a 10 minute play I did like a couple months ago, uh, just, just like a little short thing. So I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm I'm on cloud nine. I'm I'm so excited. That's awesome. Well, thank you both for talking about it. I I appreciate you going into so much depth on this. This is a a show that I know I I'm not in Seattle, so I will be watching on demand, and I hope everybody else does as well. And and hopefully at some point in the future, one of those crazy off Broadway theaters will actually think it's worthy to come into <laughs> New York City, and uh, people there can see it on stage for themselves. You can contact me directly, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it would make for a great season of doing this with, you know, some O'Neill and some Williams and some Tracy Letts stuff and throw this yeah. right in the middle and it'll feel like home. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. I yeah, definitely. I feel I feel like uh, I I have a deep love for those plays. And I think I think that audiences are often underestimated, and there's room for both. All right, as a reminder, Two Mile Hollow is playing at the Intamon Theater in Seattle through May 14th. Well, Matt, this week I got to talk to a gentleman named Charles Fee. He is the producing artistic director for the Idaho Shakespeare Festival in Boise. He is currently also directing one of the productions there, Much Ado About Nothing, which I believe is one of your favorites. Mm -hmm. And that's going to open in Boise at the end of May. What's interesting is that same company has already performed at Cleveland Shakes. And after Boise, they go to Tahoe for the Tahoe Shakespeare Festival. So it's like a rotating company between those three festivals. And what's even more interesting is that they also perform Mamma Mia, the same company. Oh, wow. So he explains he explains it way better. Um, but I'll tell you, it sounds like a fascinating theater group that rotates between those cities. I absolutely adored talking to him. He is vibrant and enthusiastic, and I just enjoyed every second of it. So here is Charles Fee. Uh, where are you? I am in Los Angeles. Great. Uh, what part? North Hollywood. Okay. And Matt, Matt is in Orlando, Florida. And, uh, Matt, and is Matt on the mic with us? He is not. No, he's just going to be editing this. So sometimes I just okay. say things to make sure he listens to the whole thing. <laughs> That's good. And then the, the podcast comes out in New York. So, you know, we're just covering the country. That's so sweet, honestly, because, you know, all of us who are uh, living our lives outside of New York do sometimes feel like, uh, you know, there's not a lot of coverage for anyone uh, if they're not in New York City. So I really deeply appreciate you guys uh, creating this and creating some uh, discussion with regional theaters. Well, that is why we started it. And uh, we've been covering, um, we've covered some out here. We've covered Seattle, done um, Orlando, Matt's down there. And uh, we needed to give the, the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest some love. So here you are. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. And, you know, we, we have three companies, Jennifer, that, um, that I'm artistic director of. We run them. I, I run them essentially as one company, right? Uh, one is Idaho Shakespeare Festival. The other is Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival. And the third one is Great Lakes Theater in Cleveland, Ohio. Fantastic. Maybe then we'll be uh, talking to you again with some of those other seasons. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so Much Ado, just so you get a sense of Much Ado um, was a week away from opening in Cleveland when we were shut down because of the pandemic in 2020. So then we thought we'd get it to Boise in 2020 summer. That didn't happen. We thought we'd mount it in Cleveland in 2021. That didn't happen. We thought we'd get it back to Boise in 21 and Tahoe in 21. And that didn't happen. And we finally got back to it and opened it in Cleveland uh, and just closed it. We ran it in March in Cleveland, almost exactly to the day on the schedule it would have had in 2020. Wow. Okay. Well, let's back up. Let's start from the beginning. So I'm talking to Charles Fee. Is that correct? That is correct. And you are the production uh, for the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. I have that you are the production artistic director as well as the director of the upcoming play you just mentioned, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. 
So Jennifer, this title is producing, like a producer, right? Producing artistic director. Okay, that sounds great. So can you, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about the Idaho Shakespeare Festival, its history, how you got involved, and what drew you to Boise to, it's in Boise, correct? That's right. And can you just tell us a little bit about what drew you to Boise to um, this project? Absolutely. Well, so the Idaho Shakespeare Festival, uh, like some Shakespeare festivals, but not all, was started by a group of actors in Boise, Idaho, who uh, had all been in college together and wanted to create some theater in Boise, which didn't have any uh, professional theater company um, at that time. This is back in the 70s. Uh, This is our 47th season. Oh, my God, I forget what seasons all my companies are in. I think we're in our 47th season in uh, Boise. Um, And they created a company and they did a Shakespeare play, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, first. And the reason they picked Midsummer Night's Dream is that it had no royalties attached to it, right, which is not uncommon. And then it became a hit. And so they created the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. Many, many years later, um, I was contacted by the Idaho Shakespeare Festival as they were in the search for leadership for an artistic director. And I'd never been to Idaho. And uh, like anyone, you know, I was a West Coast California person and um, was living in LA at the time. And my first thought was, you know, literally, right, why would I go to Idaho? Uh, But um, I wanted to run uh, a Shakespeare festival. It really interested me. I I was an actor, uh, you know, that's what I went to grad school for. And I loved Shakespeare, I loved performing in Shakespeare and I'd begun directing and I was the artistic director of a very small company in California at the time. Um, So this was an opportunity to run a Shakespeare festival but it was also an opportunity for me to build a new theater. The company needed a new theater and I said to the board, I would love to come out and run the theater if you'll commit to uh, a capital campaign to build a theater. And the reason is that space is everything in our work, right? And you define your company in a large way by the space that you work in and how you use space, how you design space, et cetera. So the opportunity to to lead a capital campaign and design and build a theater was super exciting. So I did that. And I joined the company in 1992. um, And we completed the theater in 1998. And that was our first season in our brand new theater. So there's my history. Uh, with the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. So this is my 31st year, 31st season. Wow. Now, speaking as someone who is currently living in Los Angeles with skywriting housing, sky uh, soaring housing prices and longing to move somewhere, did you find the transition from where I am to where you are difficult or enjoyable or why didn't yeah. I do this sooner? Or can you ever imagine living back yep. in like a metropolis like this again? Well, I was in LA yesterday. Okay. Well, <laughs> and, uh, my, my daughter lives, uh, you know, in Venice. So I was there at the beach, uh, for the weekend and I love LA. I have to be honest with you. Um, and I grew up, I grew up in the Bay area, right? San Francisco, but we had a lot of the other half of our family was down in LA. So I, I spent you know, a lot of my life in LA and, and in San Francisco and went to grad school in San Diego. So West Coast was my entire life. Um, but, you know, you, you're you right. I realized when I turned 30 that it was, it suddenly dawned on me, I mean, it hadn't really taken long, but it really hit me in the face. Like, 
I will never own a home in California if I'm going to continue to be an artist, right? I mean, I would have to run either the Globe in San Diego or South Coast Rep or ACT in San Francisco. And if I didn't, if I wasn't the artistic director of one of those companies, I would never own a home. And that started to weigh on me. I was like, what am I, what is this life? So um, I took these two off the beaten track opportunities. One, the first one was, I joined a very small company called Sierra Repertory Theater up in the foothills of California, east of the Bay Area in Sonora, California. That's where I became an artistic director. And that's where I started directing. And I loved it. But I could get to L.A. in you know, six hours and back to San Francisco in two. Uh, Idaho, though, really did seem like that's that's way out there. Right. And I'd never been there. But when I got here to interview for the job. I saw something that then became a kind of a theme in my career, which was um, a community that that was absolutely about to explode, right, economically. At a moment, sorry, of course, I get a phone call in the middle of this. Um, that was about to explode economically in the middle of a depression in California, recession in California. Um, and, you know, the opportunity looked so obvious and while I was talking to the board of trustees, they took my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, out to look at homes like like a 1960s corporate, you know, sort of world they used to do. Right. The guy interviews for the job and the wife looks for the house. OK, it is that really uh, um, old school. She came back and I said, how the house thing go? And she said it was really interesting. Uh, there's some very nice houses. And I said, oh, great. And she said, and yeah, like for $60,000, you could buy a kind of nice home. And I said, no, 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 you must mean $600,000. There's no such thing as a home for $60,000. So you get the point. There was, right? This is, so, this is all too uh, real right I now. Love- <laughs> yeah, I love the people that are back. Now, Boise's gone completely crazy, right? Boise now has one of the highest housing costs in the nation. Now, that's not as a like a comparison of what's a house in, you know, in Santa Monica cost. It's a, it is a comparison between what's the average salary in Boise compared to the cost of the average home. And so it's become one of those places that is insanely expensive. Our homes have doubled in value in a year and a half. So everyone's experiencing this housing nightmare everywhere, right? Boise too. But it was a very attractive piece of deciding to come to Idaho when I did, because I could move to Idaho, I could become the artistic director of a Shakespeare festival. The board said they would build a new theater and I could own a home. And then six years later, I would move and trade up back to a big city and run a major theater company. I don't know. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. It's a really good deal. I never left Boise, however. (laughs) (laughs) I do have an apartment in Cleveland, though. We will get to the show in a second, but I'm just curious how you balance directing productions as well as being the producing artistic director. How do those duties overlap, or how do you keep them straight um, between gigs? This is an unusual thing about theater. Um, about performing arts in general, theater, theater maybe in some ways, um, well, theater and ballet, honestly. 
in, in this sense, um, you know, often, right, you are the lead artist for your theater, the artistic director, but you're also an administrator, right? And as a producing artistic director, my job really is um, completely encompassing of all of the budget and finances as well as the art, okay? I like that balance between uh, the finance and artistic side, right? The business and the artistic side. Um, I've had to build my own companies my whole life. And uh, no, you know, I didn't, there was no like, you know, silver spoon in my world. So I had to make my living and build my companies. And it's a really satisfying thing. And yeah, when you direct a play, uh, you sort of check out in a way from leadership in this sense. When you're directing, it's really engrossing, right? All day, every day, six days a week. And then on Mondays, I have meetings the entire time, okay? Because, you know, I, I've given up the other six days to be in rehearsal rather than administrating. Um, but over time, right, I, I ran really small companies and I've built them up and I've, you know, run three now. And the fact is, it, it's just experience that you get used to how you shift your focus from making decisions about investing uh, your capital for your company and decisions about, you know, which wine bottle you want in that scene in Much Ado About Nothing, right? Are they drinking Chianti or are they drinking uh, Pinot Grigio or is it champagne? And, you know, that's not in some ways all that different than making every other kind of decision you have to make as a leader, right? I'm keeping myself on mute because I live in the path of the Burbank airport. <laughs> so oh, yeah, I, yeah. I try not to pick up the planes while you're talking. Yeah, I know it well. I lived in North Hollywood. <laughs> I'm sure you, I'm right on the border of Toluca Lake. Uh, good. Yeah, the, the good parts. <laughs> okay, so we had, we had talked a little bit about Much Ado About Nothing, that you've been working on this for how long now since the pandemic well, I mean, hit? you know, working on it, right? We were ready to tech it. When ready to tech. Shut down in okay. 2020. Yeah, we were literally, I mean, I we were doing final run-throughs in the room and about to move into the theater to tech uh, on the weekend that we were shut down. We were shut down on Thursday, right, by our, the governor of Ohio, who, you know, the, the decision was, we all just were sitting in the room waiting and listening to the press uh conference and essentially it was how many people is he going to allow to be in a public gathering right and we were thinking it was going to end up being 500 that was kind of the early word and at 500 that's the size of our theater in Cleveland we would have been fine uh, but it turned out that it was 100 and so you know we were out of business like everybody else within a few weeks every single theater company in America was out of business right and then around the whole globe so you know so then do you keep working on it in a way, right? <clears throat> well, no. Everybody, all the actors and designers and everybody scattered immediately, right? Everybody had to go back to their homes and cities and et cetera. And I had to plan other theater, other seasons. Now, I kept planning to do much ado, as I said to you. But really, all that COVID became for most of us in the theater was about an 18-month period of writing and rewriting budgets every month, right, to the tune of Six weeks from now, we're going to be back on stage, right? No, we're not. Uh, nine, you know, 10, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, you know, how many weeks till we're back on stage and rewrite budgets for it and restructure your seasons? So really, we weren't working on much to do during that period. When we finally knew we were going back into rehearsal, yeah, then we came back into it. And I got most of the original company back. Not everybody. I have a new, I had a new um, 
uh, Claudio, I had a new Don John, I had a new uh, Baraccio, you know, several characters, um, a new Dogberry, um, because the others couldn't, you know, their lives had changed enough that they had taken other gigs or et cetera, and couldn't get back to our production. But to go back into rehearsal was such a joy. I, I cannot tell you. Um, and the excitement of the company uh, to get back to that play, that play, Much Ado, um, I produced it a lot and it was the second time I directed it. And it's just an absolute treasure. It's a, just a piece of joy, every moment of it. And there's darkness in it, of course, and there, you know, there are evildoers in it and like all Shakespeare plays, um, but it's just a vacation in Italy. And so that's what we're all just dying to get back to. So we'll get, we'll get to the bard in a second, but just to clarify, when you say that you are involved with Cleveland and with Tahoe in this production, is this this like is this production performing at all those three venues? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All of our plays play all of our theaters. Okay. okay. Um, except for, I mean, yeah, that, that's not quite, quite true. Tahoe has a very short season because it's Tahoe, and you're at sixty two hundred feet in the air in the Sierras. So Tahoe, we have an eight week season. We do two plays. And it'll be Much Ado About Nothing, right? Which we'll be taking there. Um, and Mamma Mia, which will play in rep with Much Ado. And that's as good as it gets, people. I Much mean, I don't know how you beat a double bill like that. It's incredible. Um, and the company, to be honest, 70% uh, of the company is in both shows. All that's amazing. Yeah. ABBA and the Bard together. Yep. We do musicals in Shakespeare all the time, right? Those are my favorite mm -hmm. two forms, okay? Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll uh, so we always do this and we, we open our shows in the spring in Cleveland. We do three shows from January till the end of May in Cleveland. And then we open the season with two of those shows in Boise. And we hold the third one back either for later in Boise or it goes to Tahoe as an alternate to one of the others. So, so that's what happens. We do five plays in Boise, and then we come back to Cleveland in the fall, bringing the shows that we haven't played in Cleveland that are, have been built in Boise, we bring them back to Cleveland. So this year, Romeo and Juliet and Little Shop of Horrors will come back to Cleveland in the fall of 2022. Wow, what a fascinating life you lead. It's a really great, it's a great structure. The key to this structure is this. What we're trying to solve is a really simple problem. We create, we build very large cast, large canvas productions in, you know, Lort, Actors' Equity, Lort companies, expensive companies, big group of actors in small market theaters, Boise, Cleveland, Tahoe. The only way this works is if you're sharing the work. But rather than co-producing, which you could think of this as, we are completely producing. It's much more like we're touring because everybody's the same, right? The artistic director down to marketing, all of my production staff, carpenters, stitchers, props, electrics, paint, everybody works on all three, in all three theaters. We travel like a circus. I have separate boards of trustees. They're separate theater companies, independently operated. I have administrative staffs that don't travel in all three theaters, but very small. So what we've able to do is create a small footprint company 
that performs year round in three markets. And that's what makes this business model work. Wow. I've never, I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard of anything like this. This is amazing. We're the only company in the country. Okay. Well, that explains it. Um, so much ado about nothing. Now, for the most part, I would say a lot of people have seen this at least once in, in some iteration, whether it be film or on stage or they read it for class. What is it about this one that that you think that you're bringing something that nobody's ever seen before? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a fabulous thing, Jennifer. Um, you know, if you know this really famous uh, Romanian director, Andrei Chabon, uh, I don't know if you know him, he's not your generation, but super famous uh, avant-garde director in the 70s and 80s. And I grew up with the sort of guiding light. He was a director who always said, I'm going to do something that no one else has ever done. Well, this is like an insane idea that you're going to do something that no one else has ever done with a play that's 400 years old. And if you spend your time worrying about it, um, I guess, you know, you're you're either a better person than I am, or you're completely mad. It never dawns on me to say, what am I going to do with Much Ado? What am I going to bring to it that no one's ever seen before? Because let's be honest, uh, it's been being performed by, in in the last two centuries, every single significant actor, you know, basically around the world, right, has played Beatrice, uh, and many have played Benedict as well. So I don't think of it that way. I think of it as, what is it about the moment that we're in that brings a kind of life and energy and rationale to putting much ado on stage as opposed to Taming the Shrew or Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night or As You Like It or any of the other great comedies in Shakespeare. And at this moment, and when I picked it, there were a couple of things that really interested me about the show. This is pre-COVID, but we're looking at a similar world. This play, which I'm setting in the 1920s, is a play about a community that is unleashing itself from the trials and horrors of war. It's about the warriors coming back from battle, having won the current battle, and finding themselves in a village that, that they know and where the people, the leader, the governor, right, Leonardo, the governor of Messina, knows these, this army and invites them to stay at his estate for a month to just let go, to let go of all the tension, to let go of all the, you know, the, the horrors, to let go of all the difficulty they've been through in battle and to just feel taken care of and at home and free. One of the reasons for picking the 20s is that 1920s is sort of, you know, many ways has that same feeling, right? A world, now the, the horrors of World War I are not particularly helpful to me in Much Ado. That's, they haven't been in World War I. And I'm never that dogmatic about our settings, right? But it's a world in which there's a kind of newfound freedom and joy and crazy liveliness, right? Almost, almost over the top sense of celebration. In the 1920s, right, we've just, we've just re- recovered from the war. We've recovered from a global pandemic. 
1918 uh, Spanish flu, which went on for two years, three years. Um, and so that when we then came back to Much Ado in our setting after the pandemic, suddenly that sense of that, that part of the 20s really registered with all of us. And our own desire, like, as I said, to be on vacation, you know, to somehow let go of all the, all the, difficulties, tor torture really, of the last two years and celebrate with each other just being together. All of those things played into this production. Beatrice is a character that is one of the great characters in all of Shakespeare, um, and no question about that. And she's a woman with a very unusual, in a very unusual position in the canon of Shakespeare, in the comedies, right? The comedies are all plays about marriage, all of them. They're all about marriage. Beatrice is in an unusual position because she has no parents, no father and no mother. We don't really encounter very many women in Shakespeare in that position in the comedies, young women who are in a comedy, which is the world in which you're gonna marry someone, okay? Now, granted, she calls herself, you know, that. They're, they consider themselves Beatrice and Benedict confirmed bachelors, but whatever that means. She simply can't find anyone who's her partner, her mate, her, her you know, soul, right? In the way that Kate and, and Petruchio have the same problem. Kate can't find anyone to match her. She's too smart. She's too, you know, she's too self-possessed, et cetera. And so is Beatrice. Um, and Beatrice in the 20s, is that woman who's absolutely a suffragette. She's absolutely, you know, um, you know, wearing slacks and having fun and smoking cigarettes and drinking with the boys. And that's the joy of her, right? And so uh, again, that setting is, is partly about those ideas. Now, is it unusual? No, this play, this play is always said, I've seen it in the twenties, I've seen it after World War II, I've seen it in the 50s set on, you know, in, in just after World War II, but set in, in Palm Springs in the 50s, you know, I've seen it in every conceivable uh, context and way. And so, yeah, um, ours is that way, right? <laughs> ours is the 20s. There you go, Jennifer. I, I think I could sit and listen to you talk about Shakespeare for a whole day. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> but we don't have a whole day. Okay? No, no. Um, so much ado, you've explained thoroughly and wonderfully why you love it so much. Are there any Shakespearean plays that you find yourself, if you could, you would direct it every year or if you want to revisit like all the time? Or are there any that you kind of shy away from? Oh, yeah, sure. They're both, right? I could direct much ado all the time. I could direct dream. I, I love the comedies, to be honest. I could direct dream all the time. Twelfth Night, um, As You Like It, I think I'll direct. I think I'm going to direct As You next year. Um yeah, so many of those, right? I've directed Hamlet more times than any other. Well, Macbeth and Hamlet more times than any other play, uh, et cetera. Um, the, the things that are daunting uh, are, are the histories in some ways, right? The histories are daunting from a producing standpoint because they're extraordinarily difficult to sell and uh, to sell to an American audience particularly. Right. Um, you know, for all of the classic reasons. And yes, I'm sure you have Shakespeare diehard fans listening to the to the podcast. And I hope you do. And I'm sure you do. 
and they will you know be sitting there thinking that's ridiculous uh but the fact is selling a play is no different than selling a movie um, not many people want to see right uh henry the fourth part two i didn't see part one why would i go to part two or Henry VI, parts one, two, and three. Oh my God, I have to see three plays to understand this? Now, granted, currently in television, in television, these serializations are fantastically uh, engaging because you watch them for you know an hour per episode, right? And if we could produce in that kind of model, uh, I bet we could find more ways, more people who'd be interested in seeing the whole tetralogy of Shakespeare's history plays. Um, done in a series of, you know, 90-minute chunks that you then come back a month later. But you can't produce them that way. Not only that, uh, the history plays are, are just extraordinarily complex politically and uh, in terms of plot structure, right? But mainly in terms of the names of the people. These are not, it's not our history, right? And it's like tracking them as a director create trying to create clarity for an audience is really hard. So the history plays are daunting. I love them. I love parts of them. Um, I love Henry the Fourth Part One as much as any play in Shakespeare. Uh, absolutely at the top of the list. But uh, again, um, I found over my career that they're they're so difficult to sell. And as a producer producer in the not for profit uh, theater world today. Shockingly enough, we have to play at about 90% occupancy to be at our budget. And so that puts more pressure on the not-for-profit theaters that I run than most commercial theaters have, right? In terms of what your audience has to be. So, so those are the things that those are the things that keep me awake at night. Uh, you know, how can I do that? How can I produce that play? Have you ever um, seen a Shakespearean production that kind of blew your mind in a way where you're like, have, you, you walk away having a completely different opinion of the play that you went in with? Yeah, yes, I have. Absolutely. Um, I'm not, I, I suppose you, you make it, you, you create a really interesting question when you say that I walk, that you walked away from having ha having understood the play differently than you have before and that's and that's a very important kind of experience and i'm trying to think i mean i've seen so many productions that i love um one was a production of coriolanus um and it was a brilliant director a brilliant actor playing coriolanus in, in set in uh kind of contemporary it was very contemporary world it was the first time, it was the early 1980s, and it was in San Diego, and I had never seen video being used on stage, large video screens being used on stage. And in Coriolanus, they were being used uh, essentially for press conferences that were then being live broadcast simultaneously on these large screens in the theater. That was, that was a... a a technical structural element of storytelling that I, that was the first time I'd ever seen. And it was shocking to me how brilliant that idea was in terms of how to tell narrative, right? And particularly like to, to give 
um, background information uh, to an audience in the form of news broadcast, essentially. Right now, that now that sounds sort of old fashioned now, but it was the very first time I'd ever seen it, and it changed my sense of storytelling in the theater. Right about how we tell story, um, and and made me think of ways to 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 think how might we tell story in in these plays, right? So I mean, th there are simple problems in Shakespeare plays. Shakespeare plays always have letters, right? Letters in the comedies, they're letters, but in all the play, they're letters that are transmitting the most critical information in the world in the to the other characters. Um, and what happens if those become cell phones in your productions, right? And you're texting instead of waiting for a letter. And, and we've used that technique and you, I'm sure you've probably seen it. And it's super, super fun because it's a way of saying, oh, we can change the way we storytell. Yeah, so I've seen actors in Shakespeare plays give performances that completely just shook me up, right? Because of how, how powerful they were. Um, I saw not that long ago uh, a Hamlet. Well, I saw a Hamlet with a fabulous woman uh, last year in London, last year, year before last. Um, British, uh, black British television actress, fantastic. Oh my God, her last name is Cush. I, I didn't really know her because she's a British star. She has fantastic Hamlet. Um, and I saw Rory Kinnear a couple of years ago. He's a wonderful British uh, actor. Play Hamlet, and that was a really different Hamlet than I've ever seen before, um, and really made me think deeply about who and how you can cast that role. Uh, both of them, of course. I mean, Cush's performance was uh, pretty breathtaking. So yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about those shows that you see in life that really change the way you feel, and and of course, every artist is looking for that, right? That which will really change the way I view my work. Um, or, or teach me something, most importantly, about how I can how how I can structure my work, right? Well, I think you're you're starting to sell me on a, a trip to Boise because I <laughs> I just I love the way you think. I love the way your mind works. Um, I just have one more question for you. It's a sure. little um, now. I would imagine as a the, in the producing role, you like you said, you have to think about the money. You have to think about what's going to get the butts in the seats, and I get that. Yeah. And you have your Romeo and Juliets, and you have your Hamlets, and and your Midsummers. But what's what's a Shakespeare play that attracts crowds that would surprise people? Well, for instance, the big name tragedies really do. You know, some so a director or producer at some point early in my career said to me, you know, it's the it's the it's the title character plays that make the difference, right? Othello, right? Othello is always sells. Hamlet sells. Macbeth sells, right? Julius Caesar sells. Um, and it's the, uh, you know, it's the kings and the numbers that get difficult. The comedies are hard in some ways. You'll notice that in New York and in London, too, but the comedies are rarely done for com in commercial theaters. Hamlet, people do every two years in, well, it's done every year in London. You can't go to London without seeing Hamlet almost any season in a major production. But it's done all the time. It's done in the West End, et cetera. So is Macbeth. So is, you know, Daniel Craig starring in Macbeth right now on Broadway. Um, but get Daniel Craig to do a comedy 
that almost never happens. And the reason is that the comedies, they, they're ensemble plays, right? It takes, there are eight people in a comedy who are important. There's not, it's not just Macbeth, right? It's not just, I'm going to see his Hamlet. I'm going to see his bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. I can't wait to see it. That, that just doesn't sell. Um, and even Benedict and Beatrice uh, are pretty difficult sell and never, almost ever in New York. Think of the last Broadway production of Much Ado About Nothing, right? Or the last Broadway production of As You Like It or Twelfth Night or Midsummer Night's Dream or now we could go through the whole list. It doesn't happen because you can't, you, the stars won't play them. Now, a Shakespeare play that people don't expect, I, honestly, th there is no such thing. There are productions that can become so kind of renowned, but you have to be in a major market for that, right? Um, that, that, that it would surprise you, you know? It would surprise you that um, Henry, the, Henry uh, Richard II, through Richard III, right, which is the tetralogy, the history plays, has been done several times in London in full-on productions in which you, that you do all of the plays. And, and it's almost always a huge hit when they do that. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, when, when, when the RSC did Nicholas Nickleby, a uh, five-and-a-half-hour production of a Charles Dickens novel. Well, it was a massive global hit. And so if you can turn a play, you know, the Shakespeare plays sometimes into something gigantic, something that is a, a, a spectacle, right? Uwe von Hovet, what's his name? Uwe von, Uwe von Hove, whatever his name is. Um, oh, the... Super um... famous. Yeah, yeah, the Broadway guy. He just did a yeah, bunch yeah, of stuff. Did, yeah, you yeah. know, he did. Yeah, he did. Um, he did network, and he did mm -hmm. uh, this crazy West Side Story. Um, he did the Roman plays, uh, you know, all simultaneously on a stage in in New York and out of his company in in wherever it is in Holland or The Hague or something. Um, and you know, the, those those are such incredible experiences that they become huge sellers. But again, you've got to be in a giant market. When you're in small market, right? Um, it's, it gets more difficult. Now, I'm in a really rarefied position now in Boise, Idaho. We have this little community. Most people don't know much about us. We have a fantastic company. I've been able to do anything I want to in the Shakespeare plays. I mean, I can, I can set a Shakespeare play anywhere and our audience just goes, okay, whatever, bring it on. They don't, they're no longer freaked out about almost anything we do. Change gender, bring in all kinds of color in the casting. No. They're there, they come. And I could in Boise now, I could sell Time of Athens, as long as I did it in a short enough run, <laughs> right? Um, but that's a really unusual thing and it's unusual about Boise itself. Cleveland is a super complicated, really competitive market, really competitive. So in Cleveland, uh, you, you veer off the beaten trap and it's, it's really difficult. Let's put it that way. Well, Charles, as I said, I wish I could talk to you for two more hours, but I've taken up enough of your time. Um, are you a social media guy? I'm not. Good for Thank you. You're going to love it. I have Good never had a Facebook you. account. I've never had a Twitter account, but my people are. 
And that's why I can get away with it, right? Where yeah. our companies all have Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff, right? And and um, you know, now now TikTok, right? Moving into TikTok, everyone's oh, yeah, like, yeah. I come up with a TikTok. Uh, so yeah, but I don't do any of this. Well, we will we will put up the website for the festival as well as the Thanks. handles for Instagram and such. So at least there'll be publicity that way. But I hope that we can talk again um, because yeah, you I should come to Boise. I would love to come to Boise. I do have a very good friend that lives there. Oh, you do? Well, then come because um, (laughs) because it's it's a great place. I mean, it really is a great place. It's not. It's would sort of completely like you'd be like, wait a minute, this is Idaho, this is Boise. How come it doesn't sound like this is what it's going to be outside of Idaho, right? Like we have this really strange conception of what Idaho is going to be, and then you get to Boise, it's like, wait a minute. This feels like a progressive, high-tech Western city. Yeah, turns out that's what Boise is. That's not what the rest of Idaho is, but it's what Boise is for sure. So Much Ado About Nothing is running in Boise at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival, May 20th through June 11th. Charles is proudly nowhere to be found on social media, <laughs> but you can find more information on the theater at idahoshakespeare.org or cleveland at cleveshakes.com. Or if you're closer to Tahoe, you can go to like tahoshakespeare.com. It's all the same company. He's a fascinating guy. I hope we get to talk to him again. Okay, Matt, and then why don't we talk about your your next interview? Okay, this is an interview that I have been teasing on today on Broadway for a while as I am in conversation with Trammell Tillman. He just recently wrapped up a run at the Goodman Theater in Chicago in the new play Good Night Oscar, which co-starred a, a veritable who's who uh, of great stars. It is led by Sean Hayes, also features the always fantastic Emily Burgle, Ben Rappaport, Ethan and Slater and more. Um, we talked a little bit about that, but the reason that I was talking to him was because Trammell is a part of a new podcast version of another Shakespeare classic. He is playing Edmund in the play on podcast production of King Lear, which we've been talking about today on Broadway this past week. In it, um, he stars opposite the legendary Keith David, who plays the title King. And this production is built specifically for podcasts, and it's infused with a jazz score that uh, kind of highlights the San Francisco setting. It's a really remarkable audio production and audio odyssey. So I highly recommend that you check that out. So I love talking about Goodnight Oscar, King Lear for Play on Podcasts. But Jen, as you know, I am a recent convert to the Church of Severance, and uh, Trammell Tillman is one of the stars of that Apple TV Plus series. He plays Mr. Milchick, uh, who is one of the most quietly menacing characters I've seen on TV in a long time. So we talk about that, including some of his very memeable moments in the later half of the season. Um, So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Trammell Tillman. All right, Jermall, I take it you are in Chicago right now. Is that is that correct? Yes, I'm in beautiful, cloudy Chicago right now. <laughs> how, how much longer do you guys have with Goodnight Oscar? 
Well, Good Night Oscar runs until April 24th. So we have a few days left. It's our last week of the run. I can't believe it. We, we, I got to Chicago February 14th on Valentine's Day uh, and received a very warm welcome because Chicago was so warm during that time. I was really surprised. I had my winter coat and thermals and gloves ready to go. Uh, but fortunately, I've encountered more of the warm parts of Chicago this February, March season, as opposed to the colder months. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, and we've talked about it here on Broadway Radio, um, Good Night Oscar uh, as a show with really a star-studded cast that's a, a sold-out run um, at the Goodman Theater um, with you and Sean Hayes and and um, Ethan Slater and Ben Rappaport. What has this experience been like? You have kind of had your foot in both the theater and television mediums for quite a while now coming out of the pandemic. Was this your first time back on stage? This was. It's hard to believe that I had not been on live stage in a theater since 2019. My last show was The Great Society at Lincoln Center with Mm -hmm. Brian Cox. Um, And while that show was short-lived, it was a wonderful time with another star-studded cast and just lovely people. But how fortunate I was to be a part of another theater production, uh, Good Night Oscar, with just warm, generous, creative souls. You know, Emily Burgle and Peter Gross and Ben Rappaport and Sean and Ethan and John uh, have all been just amazing. Um, and Doug Wright has been in the room since the very beginning and working with Lisa Peterson, the director. Doug is the playwright. Um, and we were all part of the phase of really crafting this show and making it as specific as we could um, in the 90 minutes that we wanted to tell this story. And with a cast like that, I think one of the inevitable questions is you had a sold out run in Chicago. Do you anticipate there being a, a life for this show, either with you or without you uh, in the future? I mean, there are fingers crossed that this show moves to Broadway. I hope that it does move. It has the makings. Uh, and Sean does an absolute stunning job with this show. And I'm so glad to, to be on stage to see it and watch him do it. And I'm glad the Chicago audience got to experience it. So I'm hoping the New York audience uh, will also experience the joy that we've had. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that might have been your first time on stage since the pandemic, but you did, at least for one of the things that we're going to talk about, do a version of theater just in a different medium. You were a part of the Play On podcast series in which you did an audio production of King Lear. Um I wonder, with all of your background, like I said, on both stage and screen, was this a a, a different kind of acting challenge for you to communicate? I I guess maybe it helps because Shakespeare is such a a text based, um, you know, type of of theatrical endeavor. But was this kind of uh, did you have to flex different acting muscles when you're performing for audio only as you would on stage or on screen? I mean, there were different acting muscles, there were creative muscles, there were physical muscles <laughs> that reflects during this piece. You know, this experience was very different because as we were telling this story, we were not in the same room. You know, many of wow. the actors and artists, uh, they might have been in the Midwest or the West Coast, or the East Coast. I myself, when I was filming or recording King Lear, I was on uh, East Coast in New York specifically in a studio. And if I was lucky, I was able to look at 
a headshot or the face of one of the other actors that I was, you know, speaking with. But many times I didn't have that luxury just because of the way it was all situated. So there was a lot of creativity that went into and just speaking the text and, and really giving to the circumstances and allowing the text to breathe and listening. It's a heightened listening, right? Because we're not together. Um, and I was really grateful to have Eric Ting who directed the King Lear adaptation um, podcast uh, to be very, very instrumental in making sure that we were all within the same world, even though we were all in different places. And I, based off what you're saying, it sounds like you were at least recording together. It wasn't like you hear with like animated films where you uh, go into the booth, record your stuff on your own, and then kind of it gets pieced together afterwards. Right. No, we were recording together. We just weren't in the same yeah. same rooms together. Yeah, that's good. That's a benefit. And and another great cast that that King Lear was led as Lear by the legendary Keith David, another star of both stage and screen. Yes. As you work with folks across Zoom or however it is that you uh, connected, were you able to pick up? You know, obviously, like you said, you had to listen really intently, but how much were you able to really kind of adapt your performances based off of these things when you're still contending with hearing it through the broadband or maybe even some, you know, cutting in and out or delays? How how much of was there a back and forth between you and the rest of the cast when you're doing something that really is potentially hung up by technology? There was a lot of back and forth. And I think for us to have that synergy that you hear in that podcast, it was really important. Many of the cast I had not had the pleasure of working for, working with, and um, some of them I met virtually uh, for the very first time. So I wasn't privy to their work and they probably weren't privy to mine. So basically having the rehearsals was really instrumental and learning people's rhythms and cadence and how I can respond to it and how they respond to my cadence. And again, making sure that the soundscape um, is all one because even this podcast is a very specific location um, in San Francisco at a specific time. And so we wanted to make sure that all of it, everybody's contribution rang true for that soundscape. Yeah, And you mentioned the the San Francisco setting of, of, this production and you know kind of the idea of gentrification going on in the, the this specific community but you also talk about the soundscape and it has such a lush jazzy um wow. score it's it's really kind of incredible and obviously we're so used to seeing shakespeare and kind of being transported via what we see on stage and obviously that's not possible with a podcast but the the score certainly helps kind of recreate that magic. Absolutely. Um, our, our sound designer um, did a wonderful job in, in making sure that that was really elevated. And I believe it was the conversation between Eric and Marcus to have this jazz-like soundscape, uh, to have this, this blues undertone, this, this improvisational um, mood that happens there, but then also it can ramp up at any moment. Uh, and I think it really speaks to the the tenor of San Francisco at that time. And also um, it really helps Edmund, uh, helped me step into the shoes of Edmund, um, kind of understanding 
uh, where his motivations lie within this San Francisco world. Yeah, and you mentioned Marcus Marcus Gardley, the uh, the, the fantastic playwright who, um, I guess you know you do have to say translated the Shakespeare into modern uh, modern text uh, to make it work. So um, it's really kind of fascinating. I, I know. I mean, I will say I, I told you before we started recording. I saw you uh, at Classic Stage Company in um, in Carmen Jones, which, as listeners will know, is a, a production that I've raved about ever since seeing it. Um, but I wonder what is your experience with Shakespeare? I assume all actors have some sort of background in performing Shakespeare at some point, either professionally or in school. Um, but where do you come from from a Shakespeare perspective? My first Shakespeare experience was doing a production of Twelfth Night, where I play Duke Orsino. Mm-hmm. And it was at, it was in connection with a school in Mississippi. Um, New Stage Theater is a regional theater in Jackson, Mississippi, did a partnership with a high school. And I have to tell you, it was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, why? And it wasn't, it was not the the production itself it wasn't the cast it wasn't the um the creative team it was the audience we performed in front of some high school students who would be considered highly privileged and i'm gonna tell you they threw gum on stage they talked the entire time they yelled they text it was as if they thought they were at a movie theater and we could not hear them and Yeah, it was my first introduction to Shakespeare. And I I guess in some way it felt very, very Elizabethan because that's how it was in Elizabethan day. You know, they would they would, you know, be in the vomitoriums, you know, throwing up and like throwing bottles and yelling and screaming, you know, throughout the theater while the show was going on and laughing. Uh, But it was very surreal. It was very surreal. Um, But I was able to get through that particular performance and then the rest of the shows weren't as bad, but as bad. Um, as, like, bad. <laughs> as bad, but what a way to be introduced to Shakespeare. Uh, and uh, that was probably about 11, 12 years ago. And ever since then, I had the opportunity to work at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is how I got connected with Play On. And I did a production of Hamlet and I played Laertes there. Uh, of course, I've done Shakespeare in grad school um, and the like, but um you know, of course, there's a list of shows that I would love to be a part of. And Edmund is one of those roles that I was glad to sink my teeth in. And hopefully in the future, we'll see. I'll do I have the opportunity to do a live production on stage. So other than doing a live Lear, you said there is a list of other roles that you'd like to sink your teeth into. What Anything off the top of your head come to mind specifically? Um, I would love to sink my teeth into Hamlet. Mm hmm. Would like love to try that. Um, Benedict and Much Ado About Nothing. One of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would also like to try, um, it's an unorthodox uh, look on it, but Iago, I love playing the complex villain characters in Shakespeare. That would be an interesting take on Iago, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Iago, um, um and, you know, Prince Hal, that journey and Henry V mm-hmm. um, from Henry IV, part one to and to Henry V would be quite a journey to take. 
and would love to be part of that as well. Wow. I, I'm here for it. I, uh, as I told you, the uh, I, I loved you and Carmen Jones. Then when I turned on Severance and I did not recognize you, even though you look the same, it's the the facial hair threw me off. There is definitely, I feel like, some Shakespearean vibes in Mr. Milchek uh, as well. He he comes across as the kind of kind and professional boss so to speak but there's just such menace in everything that he does i feel like there's a little bit of shakespearean undertones to that character i love that i I hadn't thought about that but yeah i I love that that he's a shakespearean kind of guy you know i love that yeah so with that show that's become a kind of one of the most talked about series of so far of 2022 obviously i'm assuming that everybody involved was really proud of what you all did, but did you anticipate it having the groundswell of interest uh, uh, that it has? I have to be honest. I had no idea how they were going to take it because <laughs> understandable. It, you know, the show is so incredibly specific and Ben and Ben is so brilliant and Dan is incredibly smart. Um, and with the way the structure of the show, they wanted to make sure um there wasn't too much information disseminated. So they want, you know, in order to protect the integrity of the show, everything was kept confidential. So I didn't really have the opportunity to see much of it until they were ready to show. Oh, wow. So it was a shot in the dark. You know, there were moments where I felt like it was throwing spaghetti at the wall because I had no idea what it would look like. But I'll tell you, oh. when I had the opportunity to see the teaser or the sizzle reel, my jaw dropped because it was so stunning. And I knew that the writing and the premise of itself was different and it intrigued me. So I was invested, but it was when I saw it visually, I said, okay, this is something special. Uh, And the audience has gravitated to it. Yeah. The visuals on the show are so unique and and so disorienting, obviously probably on purpose, um, Mm -hmm. but it is uh, such an incredible ride. And I, I was in from the from the teaser kind of like you were but i didn't have the background of actually knowing what was going on and um what i've loved about the the series is that not only do we have these rich characters um you know that are kind of the two sides of the individual people but even the folks who aren't severed um you know like like you and and uh, patricia arquette these characters are such rich and nuanced and interesting and deeply weird individuals that i couldn't turn away from it <laughs> good yes yeah. uh, and, and like you said they don't dole out a ton of information. And even though I think probably the last two episodes of the season were some of the most thrilling episodes of TV I've seen in a long time, still didn't give us a lot of answers. I'm still sitting here waiting for answers, which fortunately, <laughs> hopefully we will get an opportunity to get some of in, uh, in season two. And I know better than to ask any spoilers or anything. I'm so I'm not even going to do that. But if Dan, <laughs> Dan Erickson, the creator and, and Ben Stiller, who directed a, a bunch of the first season episodes, if they came to you and said, OK, season two, we're going to see some of Mr. Milchek's life outside of Lumen. We, we want your input. Who, who do you think he is outside of the work environment? If he actually ever leaves, maybe he never leaves the basement. <laughs> He's currently in the basement yeah. right now getting the coffee cozies. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 
that I love what you said about the questions and the answers because it leaves you with more questions. But it's totally mm-hmm. the brand of the show, you know. Like you, you have so many questions starting, and then you get into the season, and then there's more. There you'll get answers, but then as you get answers, you get more questions, you know. Um, and so it's I I love that take on it. And even with season two, I have no idea um, what is up the sleeve, you know, but I, I can't even wager a guess, you know, because every time I do guess, it turns out <laughs> to be the direct opposite or something that goes yeah. totally beyond the realm of possibility. Um, but I, I just hope that in season two that we see a little bit more of of milchek um we we ended on such a cliffhanger and this show can go in so many different directions you know um so i just i make it i make the safe move and just say i don't know um what would i like to see i have i have no idea because <laughs> yeah. it's just it could be anything it really could be anything so it's it's so exciting um to be in that place yeah. Well, you might not know what you want to see, but I think I can speak for most, if not all of the show's fans, that we want to see more of you dancing and more of you sprinting down hallways. Because <laughs> how does it feel to be like you're a meme now? Like, the, the especially the dancing, like that it's was everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I had so much, you know, I, I have to give so much credit to uh, Dan Erickson and and um, Ben Stiller, who directed that scene, um, Defiant Jazz, or that whole episode, um, and even Mark Friedman, a showrunner. Defiant, uh, Defiant Jazz, like that's just such a perfect description. Like that was right? perfect. You know, it's, and I knew it was special when I read it. Um, I, I remember when they were talking about how they were going to make this thing, or they were talking about the incentives. How do we want to launch the incentives? And Mark and Ben and Dan all agreed that we have to see what Defiant or what MDE, the music dance experience, which is one of the incentives, what does that look like? And so um, Ben came to me and said, you know, we want to do kind of like this music dance experience. It's not going to be a whole dance number, but we just want to do something to try to figure that out. I said, okay. And I spent months kind of plotting in my head what I wanted to do. I had a choreographer, Tara Hart Rodriguez, who came in and she kind of helped sculpt the frame of it. And it was so much fun. We filmed it over two days and um, it was a riot. And uh, I'm so glad that everyone loved it because it's a risk. It's a move. It could have been an absolute disaster, but it was absolute gold. And yeah, Yeah. really, really was perfect. And and like I said, I, I, if, if people want to check my Twitter timeline, they can see that I'm not just blowing smoke about how much I love this show. I've been raving about it uh, since I, since I watched that first episode. So I'm very excited about, uh, about season two, whenever that shows up, but to, to get back to Lear and kind of wrap up on this, uh, uh, on this play on podcast thing, so much that we have kind of talked about as a theater community in the two years when COVID had everything virtually shut down um, has been about, at least in part, or one of the big things has been about accessibility to theater. And while Play On Podcast and this Lear and all of the other shows that they've done, um, you know, you can have the debate about is this theater, is this 
audio? Is this radio? Whatever it is, it is still theater at at heart. For you as somebody who has made a career both on stage and increasingly on screen, how important is it for you that other folks who might not have the opportunity to get into a theater and see a play, to see Shakespeare, to see a musical, um, have opportunities like this to kind of experience what it is that we love about theater in a way that they can kind of get their hands on without having to spend a whole bunch of money to do so. Oh my gosh. It's I've, I feel like it's part of my life mission to do that. I really believe in the power of the arts. You know, my, I was introduced to theater when I was 10 years old through the church. Um, And once I dived in and, and really started finding myself and who I am in the midst of the creative arts, it, it became a salve for me. It became a safe place as well. And it's such a key tool of self-expression. And the theater is such a powerful place in that it brings people of all different backgrounds, social economic statuses, um, race, religion, orientations um, to this one place so that we can congregate. And my hope is that when people experience theater, whether it be uh, through a radio play, whether it be live or whether it's streaming, that they are changed in some way, that they're impacted. Um, What I believe so beautiful about Lear is that Lear, especially with Edmund's track, speaks to the issues that we deal with today. You know, Edmund is fighting a social justice issue where he is denied the things that are rightly due unto him. And, you know, we can debate about how he goes about it. And, you know, his ambition gets the better of him and his thirst for revenge consumes him and it goes too far. But this is this is a man who wants wants what is just and wants what's right. And we can relate to that today. We see that today all across the world, not just in New York or in L.A., um, but we see that you know, overseas and our brothers and sisters fighting in Ukraine. Um, So that for me, that's the power of theater and the power of the arts to be able to challenge, to be able to unite and to be able to allow us to think about our lives and what we can do to make it better and uphold our humanity. So anything that we can do to make it more accessible, I'm all for it. Yeah, that, that's that is what makes the arts truly, truly special and important. And hopefully that can continue to be a beacon for folks that need something to uh, to feel, need a place to, to feel safe. And uh, hopefully things like play on podcasts can give folks the opportunity to experience that that they might not otherwise have the opportunity to do. So, uh, Trammell, thank you so much. I, it was an absolute thrill to talk to you, and and I'm so excited for all of the great stuff that you have going on, and, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing wherever your journey takes you, both on stage and screen, whether that's with Goodnight Oscar, or with Severance, or anything else that comes down the pike for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Yeah, of course. Love it. 
You can get Play On Podcasts production of King Lear wherever you get your podcasts, and I highly suggest that you do that. I am going to wait to listen to your interview because I'm only three episodes into Severance, and since you've been preaching the Church of Severance for so long, I'm going to wait yeah. until I finish. Good idea. Good idea. But I'm glad that you've uh, you've started getting into it, though. I have, yes. I'm very, very intrigued. Matt, you have, I would like to discuss a production in Sarasota. Yes. Yeah, so last weekend, I went out to the Oslo Rep in Sarasota, Florida, to see the world premiere of the new musical by the legendary Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. The show is called Knoxville. If you know me at all, you know how much I love Ahrens and Flaherty shows, especially Ragtime. I saw Ragtime back in the spring of 1998 on my very first trip to New York, and it has been a seminal theatrical experience for me in the intervening decades. This show, Knoxville, reunites the composing team with their Ragtime director, Tony nominee Frank Galati, who also serves as the show's book writer. The Tony-nominated choreographer of Cinderella, Josh Rhodes, who also did the choreography for Bright Star, which is important, and we'll get back to that, uh, as well as First Date, and it should have been you on Broadway, choreographs this as well. The musical reunites Bright Star alums Paul Alexander Nolan and Hannah Ellis, and the company includes the phenomenal Nathan Southstone, Natalie Venetia Belcon, Ellen Harvey, William Perry, Joel Wagner, and, most importantly for my money, the always fantastic Jason Danieli, who has one of the single best voices of his entire generation. However, now that I've run through all of that combined talent, Unfortunately, it only serves to underline just how massive of a missed opportunity this show is. In the opening minutes of the show, I found myself physically and emotionally moved when I realized that I was watching a new Aaron's and Flaherty show. And Jason Danieli's character was essentially the audience's entree into the story. And I'll get into that here in a second. But it also mirrored the fact that his late wife, the iconic Marin Maisie's character, was that same thing for Ragtime as she played Mother. It was a really beautiful moment for me, and I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it now, but it's one that I wish that the show's creators had recognized and done more to harvest and manifest than the rest of the show. I can't really tell you what this story is ultimately about beyond the basic plot points because I'm not sure that the show actually knows how to answer that question itself. Ostensibly, it centers on Jason Danieli's semi-modern Rufus, who is a writer who always seems to have a drink in his hand or cigarette in his mouth, interrogating the difficulties of his early life and his father's um, own personal demons that led Rufus to who he is now. But while what we saw in his childhood was sad, it wasn't an unfamiliar or especially unique sadness. And aside from one semi-unexplained tragedy, Everything else that we saw indicated that Rufus had a loving, nurturing childhood and that nothing we saw really led me to think that that would change in the time after the show ends. So I'm not 100% sure what this show was trying to say or what dramatic arc they were trying to build to. In fairness, it is based on a novel by James Agee called A Death in the Family and based in part on the play All the Way Home by Tad Mossel. However, I will say, despite all of this underwhelmingness from this show, watching Jason Danieli just sitting and watching his past 
kind of unfold in front of his eyes almost was enough to make the show worthwhile. Ultimately, it wasn't worthwhile, and it was uh, honestly a very, very frustrating time in the theater. But that was a really kind of a beautiful thing, as Jason wasn't the focus of certain scenes. He would sit there and watch his younger self, his parents, his uncle, his grandparents, uh, everybody from his neighborhood in Knoxville um, kind of unfold the scenes. And it was much more thrilling to watch Jason watch that action than to actually watch the action itself. There was also a a recurring theme that I found to be really beautiful um, that happened multiple times throughout the show as individuals across time periods and generations put their hands on each other's shoulders um, almost as a sign of love and support and reminding you that who you are is a product of who came before you. That was a really lovely thing, especially as it was worked into the staging and choreography. But ultimately, the show just felt underbaked, uh, to borrow a metaphor from my beloved baking shows. The the musical is roughly 90% sung through, with a majority of the ensemble also serving as musicians here and there. The songs were pretty enough, but essentially they were indistinguishable from each other, aside from two songs that left me wondering... And really, if I had any hair pulling it out, trying to figure out what dramatic or entertainment value that they actually were supposed to bring to the show in the first place. Both are sung by such minor characters that they completely derail whatever momentum the narrative has. And it makes you wonder if they were remnants of a much larger show in which those characters had more to do, but otherwise they just felt completely out of place. Unfortunately, as much as I've long admired Lynn Aaron's lyrics dating back to the days of Schoolhouse Rock, the songs here just featured kind of generic word salad lyrics that were unspecific to anything in particular, either in terms of the plot points that were happening on stage or any distinguishable human emotions. Some of the score and some of the show and the action was haunting, but it always felt like it was in a fruitless search for a ghost worthy of the musical's melancholy. Nothing that I saw on stage in the overlong, overwrought hour and 45-minute show justified any of that hauntingness or the enviable collection of talent on stage. And even worse, it made me a little resentful of the collective prolific talents in this cast. How you can have... Jason Danieli, Paul Alexander Nolan, Hannah Ellis, and Nathan Southstone in a show together and have it be that devoid of musical interest or emotional depth is really mind-boggling to me. And it was one of the most disappointing experiences that I've had in the theater in a really long time. There are certainly some things that are worth seeing. And anytime you can be in um, you know, central to you know west central Florida and see a world premiere of an Aaron's and Flaherty show, especially with a cast like this, it is worth seeing. But for somebody who has long adored all of these actors, m- many of these creators, um, it felt like such a letdown to see this product, especially after the show was originally supposed to premiere in 2020 and they had two extra years to get it ready. Uh, it just feels like a show that would be underwhelming at a college level if you told me that BFA students had written it. So um, unfortunately, I this is not a show that I would recommend on its merits alone. Maybe the, the people involved are enough to get you to Oslo to see it. But ultimately, Knoxville is not a show that I have many expectations for moving forward unless it goes through a complete, massive, substantive overhaul. Phew. Sorry. (laughs) I had a lot to say, Jim. 
I know, I know, Matt, and I appreciate that about you. Normally we would talk about um, movies and TV and, and stuff that we have watched, but I, I think that with three interviews, we've, we've, we've certainly covered the gamut this week, and we will talk about some of those things next time. I know you're headed to New York. Tonight I am headed I to Ventura to see Twilight Los Angeles 1992. I interviewed the star uh, a couple weeks back in one of our episodes, so I will report on that next episode. Um, any other things you want to bring up, Matt? No, I think I'm good. I, I I have to look at my schedule. I've got some other shows that I'll be seeing when I'm back from New York, but obviously the regional theater stuff will be put on hold for a week while I cram in 13 things uh, uh, during one week in New York. Vintage Matt. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Medium at Q and Matt on Twitter at BWWMatt. You can always reach out to us with suggestions for regional theater productions, and we shall see you next time.